Well, good morning, Life Church, and good morning to all of you who are joining us online this morning. Hope you're having a great Sunday. Maybe we can make it just a little bit better. We've been in this series called The God Questions for a thousand weeks, and here's the God question for today. How can I understand the Bible better? Because if you're anything like me, you've probably had thoughts like this. Man, there's some weird stuff in the Bible. Or you've read something and thought, man, am I really supposed to obey this? For real? Well, for the next few weeks, we're going to look at how we view and understand God's Word, which is the final authority of our faith. Because I have no doubt that there are some unanswered questions when it comes to how we view and understand and follow what this book says to us. Now, I was uh, recently asked um, what I like best about being a pastor. And I thought for a second, and I realized what I enjoy most is teaching the Bible and seeing God's truth click in for someone and they understand how it applies to their life. I take great, great pleasure in that. But I also know that there is some muddledness that takes place in people's minds about the Bible. There are some things that we don't understand. There are some things that we don't want to look at because it makes us uncomfortable. And then there are some other things we just don't know what to do with. Over the next few weeks, I'm going to bring some clarity to that stuff. And I believe if you dial in fully, you're going to feel much better about Christianity and about the Bible, and you'll no longer fear that someone's going to ask you a question or bring you a challenge that's going to make you feel stupid or ill-equipped. Now, on another front, there may be some folks that are watching today. You've been troubled by something in the Bible or someone's intellectual attack on the Bible, and your faith has been shaken. You think Christianity has holes in it because of stuff that you've heard and maybe you don't know how to answer. Well, take heart because there are very good answers and you will be glad that you gave it your very, very best attention. Now, unfortunately, these weeks are all kind of one big message. So each week will seem maybe just a little bit incomplete. I'll just have to stop and pick it up there next week. So if an issue is kind of hanging for you, you know, Reserve your judgment until I finish, okay? I truly believe that freedom and life and understanding uh, will come, and it will be liberating for many of us, even some of those of us who have been walking with God for a pretty long time, okay? Well, here we go. You know, Jesus' most devout followers and disciples never owned a Bible. They never read a Bible. They couldn't have read a Bible if they had one because most of them could not read. And if they could read, there was no Bible to read until the fourth century. Yet these men and women turned the world around, turned it upside down. They're the reason we're here today worshiping Jesus. So what did they believe? How'd they have such great impact without the Bible? Here's the truth. Easter sprung Christianity to life. The resurrection of Jesus witnessed by all of Jesus' followers and hundreds of others. That catapulted Christianity into motion. And then seven weeks later, the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost and put Christianity on steroids, and the movement of Jesus became an unstoppable force. Now, this was not about the teaching of Jesus. It wasn't about a new lesson or some kind of new moral imperative. It was based on an historical event, the resurrection, the one who lived and taught and died as God's son, conquered death and was raised to life. Now, the disciples of Jesus led this movement that was based on the resurrection. Remember, they weren't Bible scholars. 
They didn't even have a Bible. It didn't even exist until the fourth century. So their message was not, let's get back to the Bible or let's get back to the commandments, no. Their message was very simply stated in the very earliest days. And these, this uh, kind of synopsis is found in the book of Acts. Here's some verses that kind of tell you what they were all about. Acts 3.15, you killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. We are witnesses of this. Then Acts 4.20, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. Acts 5.30, the God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead. We are witnesses of these things. And then Acts 10.39, we are witnesses of everything he did. They killed him by hanging him on a cross, but God raised him from the dead. It is pretty clear that their message was focused on the resurrection of Jesus, God's Son. And that new life is found in Him and in Him alone. That message has been proclaimed for the last 2,000 years, mostly. There's been a gradual shift of emphasis based on what came out of the Reformation back in the 1500s. This is when the Reformers, led by Martin Luther, basically rescued Christianity from a tradition-driven, a word-of-the-church-driven kind of culture of a controlling religion or controlling church. I won't go into Reformation history, but one of the pillars of Christianity coming out of that is what's become known as sola scriptura, which is Latin for scripture alone. The point of that, which is a very, very good point, it declared that the Pope is not the final authority for life and faith, the church tradition is not the final authority for life and faith. The Bible is the final authority for life and faith. Now, there has been a bit of a misapplication of this truth over the centuries that followed, because there's a pretty important distinction between being the final authority of our faith and being the foundation of our faith. Over time, there's been kind of a merging of these two ideas. It wasn't anyone's fault. It just kind of happened. The Bible is, the Bible is the final authority for our faith, but it's not actually the foundation for our faith. It certainly wasn't for the early church. They didn't have a Bible. Now it's important to know that the Old Testament scriptures gave context for the Messiah and for the resurrection. See, Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament law, he fulfilled the Old Testament prophecies perfectly. Almost everyone in that day missed it completely but it's still important to know, and they got it eventually. But the distinction remains that the Bible is the final authority for theology and for life, but it's not actually the foundation for our faith. Now that may seem to you like splitting hairs because it's never really been an issue up until now, and there's a reason for that. And most of us aren't really impacted by it, but I'm gonna show you today why this is a major threat to the next generation of believers, because our kids and our grandkids are already being confronted with this. I was, and many of us were raised that the Bible is the foundation for our faith. And as the Bible goes, so goes our faith system. We were taught the Bible is true, the Bible is right, the Bible is perfect. This forms the foundation of our faith. And if all of it is not true, then it can't be trusted at all. I grew up with that. But I also grew up in a church culture that subtly feared scrutiny. We were told, don't read that, that's an attack on Christianity. Or stay away from advanced education, they're just trying to strip young people of their faith. So it's, don't watch that, don't read that, those people are the enemy. Lots of Christians probably wouldn't admit it, but they were quietly afraid that they would learn something that would pull out the bottom of card of their faith and the whole house would fall.
so they avoided those antagonistic voices. Lots of us remember that bumper sticker that said, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. That's almost correct, almost. But that mindset, even being just close to correct, can survive in the midst of a society that respects the Bible. Because for so long, even if people didn't read the Bible or believe the Bible, you'd almost never hear someone speak disrespectfully about the Bible. But that has changed, friends. Oh dear, has that, that has changed. 19 years ago, right after 9-11, there came a surge of intellectual opinion that the big problem of our world is not Islam, it's religion altogether, all religion. And that in included a growing hostility towards Christianity. And it began being expressed on TV and in print and in the growing and newish world of the internet. And there were some very convincing voices that were throwing doubt upon the Bible. And these voices were, were growing more and more popular and accepted, treating both believers and beliefs with condescension and pity and contempt. These voices were welcomed more and more onto college campuses and they have become the voice of academia at large. Now the sum total of these constant attacks was this, faith is naive. The Bible is outdated, it's faulty, it's nothing but a myth and it can't be trusted. Science has proven the Bible to be, to be flawed. And then it went further. It didn't just attack the credibility of the Bible, it actually attacked the morality of it, saying the God of the Old Testament is a moral monster. Now, there's nothing really new about attacks on Christianity, attacks on the Bible. It's been happening forever. But now it has moved into mainstream. And as, we've, as, we, as we move along in our faith, we have to get the right perspective of the Bible, its role in our lives as God's word and as the final authority. We've got to understand the relationship that we have with the Old Testament and with the Gospels and with the New Testament. If we don't, if we just mail it in, we don't apply ourselves, we just go with the flow, then we will end up with a Sunday school faith that will not survive the onslaught. Because the onslaught is not coming any longer from a hostile periphery. It's coming from mainstream America. So we're gonna look at what served as the foundation for faith for the first century church. And we'll see their view and how they began to understand the Old Testament as well because we should take our cues about the foundation of our faith from the men and women who were the center of the action in the book of Acts, the first century, first followers of Jesus. If we take our cues on all this from them, then what we'll end up with, and what our kids and grandkids will end up with, is the enduring, unassailable version of real Christian faith, which was the original version. Followers would go to their death before they would deny what they knew was true. That's how convinced they were. So let's go back to that time, back to the first century. Jesus has been killed. Three days later, he's raised to life. Hundreds of people have seen him alive again. Now Luke, who is a follower of Jesus, is kind of chronicling all the happenings of Jesus and the believers here. Now uh, Luke not only wrote the Gospel of Luke, but he also wrote the book of Acts. And here's an interesting side note. Even by modern critics, Luke is esteemed as an historian of the highest order. Impeccable detail and accuracy, even after two millennia of scrutiny. So, about seven weeks after the resurrection, 
Not seven years, not 70 years, not long time ago in a land far away, no. Just seven weeks after. Tons of visitors are gathered again in the city of Jerusalem for the holiday of Pentecost. The followers of Jesus are sitting in a large room, waiting and praying, because that's what Jesus told them to do. Then in Acts chapter 2, verse 2, it says, Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. So now these excited believers spill out of the house into the streets that are packed with visitors from all over that part of the world. And they're speaking about the power of God and the resurrection of Jesus. Now imagine you're there. You're in this city on this packed holiday weekend. You can't get a hotel room. You got to wait hours for a restaurant. Then come the follower of Jesus, followers just spilling out into the streets, preaching. In Acts chapter 2, verse 6, it puts it like this. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Now this freaks everybody out. And in verse nine it says, some however made fun of them and said, they have had too much wine. So some people are seeing this and saying, they're just drunk. You know why this is in the Bible? Because it actually happened. I can imagine Luke writing this down. Okay, that's going in there too. They think we're drunk. I'm gonna, I'm gonna write that down as part of the story. So in the midst of all this, Peter gets up and he, he addresses the crowd. Now, just a few weeks ago, Peter was the guy who deserted Jesus, denied that he even knew him. Now he's the de facto leader of the believers. In verse 22, he says, people of Israel, listen, God publicly endorsed Jesus the Nazarene by doing powerful miracles, wonders, and signs through him, as you well know. He's saying, this all happened right in front of you. You guys were there for this. In verse 23, but God knew what would happen 
and his prearranged plan was carried out when Jesus was betrayed. With the help of lawless Gentiles, you nailed him to a cross and killed him. See, these people that he was talking to were most likely part of the crowd that yelled out, crucify him. Verse 24 now. But God released him from the horrors of death and raised him back to life, for death could not keep him in its grip. Okay, now, Peter talks to the Jews a little bit more here, talking about how they should have recognized Jesus, but they missed him. Now look at verse 32. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. Now, this message is now riveting the crowd, and they all respond by saying, okay, what should we do? What do you want us to do? In verse 34, Peter says, repent and be baptized. Repent basically means change your mind in light of new information. Not only he's saying, repent of your sin, but repent of your unbelief about Jesus. Then publicly identify with Jesus by being baptized. And the Bible tells us that thousands of people came to faith in Jesus that day and they turned away from their unbelief. Now the point of all this is, the very first Christian sermon that was preached was not about something that Jesus taught. The first Christian sermon was about the resurrection and it continued to be. So Peter and John, who have been in hiding for quite some time, they're now emboldened by the Holy Spirit and they're out on the streets talking about the resurrected Jesus. People are listening. The religious leaders are getting anxious and they're getting angry. And Peter and John come right near the temple and they see there a guy that they've seen all their lives, a crippled guy who lays there looking for compassionate people. The passers-by, he's hoping they'll throw him some coins. I don't have silver or gold, but what I have, I will give you. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, rise up and walk. It's a miracle. This guy's been lame since birth. And now this newly healed guy follows them right into the temple courts. People start gasping as they see him. They're gathering all together, pointing at him. They know this is the crippled guy, and now he's standing there and walking freely. Now, Peter can't resist this moment. So again, he addresses the crowd, telling them that he was healed in the name of Jesus. In verse 13, he says, this is the same Jesus whom you handed over and rejected before Pilate, despite Pilate's decision to release him. He's saying, you handed him over, you remember that? And then he continues, verse 14, you rejected this holy righteous one and instead demanded the release of a murderer. He's saying, you remember that guys? Remember when Pilate walked out and said, hey, hey guys, what do you say we execute an actual criminal here like Barabbas? That way I can let Jesus go free. He hasn't done anything wrong, hasn't hurt anyone. But no, he says, you guys start yelling out, give us Barabbas, crucify Jesus. Now look at verse 15. He said, Peter says, you killed the author of life, 
but God raised him from the dead, and we are witnesses of this fact. I mean, that's bold. Peter's bold there. So what's the foundation of Peter's faith? Where'd Peter get his hope? We can ask ourselves that question. What should be the foundation, the epicenter of our faith? Peter would say, that's easy, that's easy. The resurrection. Right outside the temple was probably not the best place for this sermon to be preached. So the religious leaders get wind of this pretty quickly. They're meeting inside, they hear all the commotion outside. So they go out there and what do you know? There's this Peter guy again. <laughs> They've had enough of him just like they had enough of Jesus, never wanted to hear his name again. So they grab Peter and John, they throw him in jail. The next day, they're dragged before the Supreme Court of all the people, all the top dogs in their robes. These were the people who conspired to kill Jesus in the first place. They're not messing around. They've had enough. And everybody knows how this is going to end for Peter and John. It's not going to end well. It's gonna end poorly. Now, one complicating factor is that the formerly crippled guy made his way right into the courtroom. And they're like, rut row, how are we gonna deal with this? We all know this guy. We all see him on the way in. Sometimes we throw him a quarter. Sometimes we pretend he's not there and we don't even see him. We look the other way. But not only is he now here uncrippled, but now he's standing right there, hands on his hips, staring daggers at us. So in Acts 4-7, they question the apostles. They say, by what power or in whose name have you done this? This is a moment, friends. Can you imagine being called to speak before the Supreme Court? How intimidating would that be, right? Imagine having the opportunity to speak to them, but you're given no time to do your homework. Matter of fact, you spent the previous night in jail. So they drag you into the halls of that huge building. You're standing before everybody. You look down at your ragged robe and you're embarrassed. You don't look like the rest of the people in there. Not only that, you're the least educated person in the room. All the signs and sayings that are up on the wall, you can't even read them. You don't know how to read. Peter should be shaking in his sandals. But look at verse eight. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of our people, are we being questioned today because we've done a good deed for a crippled man? Do you wanna know how he was healed? Let me clearly state to all of you, to all the people of Israel, that he was healed by the powerful name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene. The man you crucified, <laughs> the man you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead. These apostles, these disciples should have been intimidated by this moment. They were by all accounts out of their league in over their heads. But the courage they had from the Holy Spirit and the presence of Jesus was in them. They were unshaken. Now the religious leaders don't know what to do. The only thing they do know is that because of the miracle of this crippled guy, they can't throw Peter and John in prison without starting a riot. So look at verse 27, here's what it says. So they called the apostles back in and commanded them never again to speak or teach in the name of Jesus. <laughs> now look at their answer. But Peter and John replied, do you think God wants us to obey you rather than him? We cannot stop telling about everything we Read in the Bible? Is that what it says? No. Everything we learned in Sunday school? No. It says we cannot stop talking about everything we have seen and heard. So they go out and keep on preaching. They keep talking about Jesus and about the resurrection. 
they're healing the sick. There's miracles left and right. Before long, the, the religious leaders come back and they arrest them again. And this time in the middle of the night, an angel comes and literally frees them from jail. And the next day, they're not just out preaching again, but they're preaching in the temple courts. The religious leaders see this again and go, you have got to be kidding me. <laughs> this time they arrest them and flog them. They whip them before they let them, they let them go. Now, a flogging in that day was much more than just a punishment. It's more than about just the pain. It was meant to induce shame. Because back then, they didn't do background checks. They did back checks. Stripes on your back showed that you'd been charged with a felony. So they look at that, stripes on your back. Oh, you're that kind of person. You've had run-ins with the law. Okay. Stripes were meant to be a symbol of shame. It meant they had a prison record. So you know what their response was? Acts 5.41. The apostles left the high council rejoicing that God had counted them worthy to suffer disgrace for the name of Jesus. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they continued to teach and preach. The resurrection of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit is how Christianity survived the first, second, and third century. There was no Bible yet. Christianity survived persecution from both the first century religious people and from the Roman Empire, long before the Bible, long before the collection of all the eyewitness accounts, long before the Gospels and the letters to the believers. That would come later and it would complement the movement. Now the passing of time has allowed us to see this perfect complementation of the Old Testament texts, the Gospel texts, and the New Testament letters. The first century believers did not even have this yet. They put their lives on the line, not because of what they read in the scrolls, not because of the stories that were told to them all their lives, but because of something else, because of what they had seen and heard with their own eyes and ears. They were there. Now friends, this is God's word. It's the final authority for Christianity and for life. The attacks on the Bible are going to accelerate in the days ahead, particularly upon the Old Testament. It's predominantly because people misunderstand the role of the Old Testament in our day. People either forget or never really fully understood that God's dealings with human beings can really be simplified down to this. It's really the story of three covenants. God's covenant with Abraham, then God's covenant with Israel, then God's covenant with the whole world. So it's God's covenant with a man, then with a nation, and then with the world. Each phase is very, very different. When we try to wrap our 21st century brains around why God did a particular thing with Abraham, we don't get it. Or why God called the nation of Israel to do a certain thing 4,000 years ago, it just offends the logic and the reason of a 21st century American. We get all fouled up when we fail to realize Act 1, Act 2, and Act 3. We live in Act 3. Acts 1 and 2 were not about us, and our modern logic blows a gasket trying to apply it today. It's not meant to be followed like that today. That's why TV shows like Living Biblically are, <laughs> it's just ridiculous. It misses the point completely unless the point is to mock or to confuse, which it may be. So, understanding the three covenants, 
grasping the massive significance of God's ways shifting from the Old Testament to the Gospels, from the Gospels to the New Testament. It's a framework we have to comprehend. If we don't, we will live in confusion. Now, I'm going to go into the danger of mixing these covenants together next week, and it will help free us from confusion, and it will help see us the brilliance of God in the midst of it all. It'll be worth your time. Why don't we ask the Lord to guide us in this? Lord, we're so grateful for your word, which is brilliant and it is perfect. Lord, our prayer is that we would be able to understand your word just a little bit better and how it applies to our life and understanding it properly. So God, would you give us the wisdom that comes from the Holy Spirit? We know that you can do this, Lord, and we believe that you will. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, Life Church, I want you to know that you are prayed for all the time and you are loved all the time. I miss being with you in person. Hopefully the day will come pretty soon. We'll be able to gather back together physically. Until we're together again, let me leave you with this. Go in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And remember, the God who came still comes and the God who spoke still speaks. God bless you. Have a great Sunday.